0: I want to start off, and I want to show uh, show us two pictures here. Uh, the first one. Uh, is a picture that was uh, taken from Apollo 17. You might have seen it before, you might recognize it. Uh, so it was taken from the Apollo 17 flight, uh, the uh, spaceship that was uh, one of the first ones to uh, travel to the moon. And this picture was actually taken uh, by the astronauts as they were uh, leaving, departing Earth and heading towards uh, the moon. And uh, it's a beautiful picture. I can't even uh, begin to imagine what it was would have been like to be the one that took that picture, to experience that kind of firsthand. And this picture is aptly titled Blue Marble. Blue Marble. The earth looks like a blue marble there. And uh, we just are in awe and wonder of that. But I also wonder if maybe growing up, Or maybe we still kind of have this thought today that that's God's perspective of the world. I mean, this is is God's vantage point of the world. Beautiful, yes, but distant. And maybe sometimes it seems like heading in the opposite direction, away from, looking down at. And so here's the second picture that I want to show you. This is taken um, outside of a church in the heart of uh, downtown London, and it's a statue that's called the Christ Child. It's just this giant stone slab that sits outside the church of uh, St. Martin in the field, and um, Inside of that, you can kind of see it there, we have another picture, inside of that statue there's this uh, really lifelike um, carving of baby Jesus. And so I was able to go and see this uh, statue firsthand, and what's really amazing about it, what I really love about it, is that this sweet baby Jesus is almost like a meteorite that has come crashing down into this giant piece of stone, like Jesus came crashing down into earth and made an impact when he arrived. And carved around the side of the statue are the words, uh, opening words from the Gospel of John that says, "...in the beginning was the word." And the word was with God, and the word was God. That's how one of the earliest storytellers began the story of Jesus. What a strange way to speak of a baby. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and full of truth. Every great story has a great beginning. But the story of, D- of Jesus didn't just begin when John started writing about Jesus. Jesus. The story of Jesus began long before that, and what John is trying to do when he speaks of Jesus as the word is he's trying to clue us in. He's trying to draw us back to the very beginning of it all, that when you first open the words of Scripture, the first words that hit you are, in the beginning, God. In Genesis 1, the first five verses go this way. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day. And the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And those first five verses sound an awful lot like the first five verses that the storyteller John begins his story of Jesus with. As he says, In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here's the point that John is trying to make. He's saying that that this Jesus is the same God who created the heavens and the earth. And now this cosmic creator God has now become part of creation. He's impacted the world. That the creator of everything is radically and inextricably bound himself with all of creation. God has come so close to us, so near to us, that God has wrapped himself in flesh and become like us. That through Jesus, God has now become part of the biological web of life. And God's perspective has changed. It's no longer a distant blue marble point of view from above, but it's now a view from within, nestled inside the cracks and the crevices of this world, cradled in the world that God created. Through Jesus, God is not distant. God is not distant. God is here, and that God's name is now Emmanuel, God with us. God's perspective has changed now, seeing the world through humans' eyes, yet God's intention has always remained the same. It's always been to create beauty, to create life, to restore harmony and goodness, to look upon the world once again and say, it is good. And to separate The darkness from the light. And here's what just really kind of blows my mind uh, about all of this. The very first action that God takes is to separate darkness from light. Because without light, there is no life. Without light in the world, without light in creation, life cannot be possible. Life cannot flourish. So think back to your ninth grade science class and remember those little things called photons, those elementary particles of light. Well, did you know that there is no place in all of creation where a single photon does not exist? There is no place in all of creation where the possibility for life and light is not there. That even the smallest particle, even the smallest amount of light can be present anywhere, can be found anywhere. Even in the darkest places of this world, there is a glimmer of light. And So now, theologically speaking, with a bit of science background now, Theologically speaking, Jesus, we say, is the light. The light who has come into this world to make, to make for the possibility of life to flourish once again. That through Jesus, God has said once again, let there be light. Let there be light so that life may flourish. I don't think that it's any coincidence that the birth of Jesus was announced with a light in the sky a star that was bursting forth through the dark backdrop to say to all of creation, there is a light. There is a light that is coming again, and the darkness and the light will be separated. That Jesus cares enough about this world to save it to enter into it, to enter into life with it, to watch the sun rise and feel the sun on his skin, to breathe the same air that we breathe, to eat the food of the ground, to share a meal with us. And so we as Christians, we can no longer look at the world from that sort of distant point of view and to think that it really doesn't matter to God. Here's how Oscar Romero, he's a martyred bishop of El Salvador, he said this, he said, some want to keep a a gospel so disembodied that it doesn't get involved in all the world. It must save. But Christ is now in history. Christ is in the womb of the people. Christ is now bringing about the new heavens and the new earth. You see, the Christmas story the story of God coming to us in Jesus, that Christmas story forces us to see that the light has taken on a body, that the word has become flesh to dwell among us. Christ came not only to save our souls, but to save our very lives and to save and restore this world and to set in motion a new creation, a new beginning. And so today starts a new season in the life of the church. It's called Advent, and it actually starts a new year in the church's calendar. The church doesn't want to do things the way that the rest of the world does, so today is actually kind of New Year's Day in the church. Um, It's the first Sunday of Advent, and Advent is really just a churchy way of saying coming or awaiting, awaiting the arrival of an important person or event, And it's four weeks that we set apart for the rest of the year where we wait, where we prepare. We prepare our hearts, we prepare our world for the coming of Christ again. And so here's what this waiting looks like. Paul, one of the uh, later followers of Jesus, put it this way, this feeling of waiting. This comes from Romans 8 where he says, for the creation waits In eager expectation for the children of God, that's you and me, to be revealed, to be shown off. For the creation was subject to frustration, but not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God because we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Paul says it's like a woman in labor, that there's this waiting, there's this expectation, there's this groaning, there's this pain, and yet there's also this hope that new life will come, that all of creation, Paul says, is groaning, and it's decaying. As it waits for the children of God, you and me, to be revealed, to be shown off, to get to work, preparing the world. And so what does it mean to prepare the world for Christ's coming? I mean, what, what are we to do in this meantime? What are we to do in this season of Advent, this season of, of waiting? Well... We hope. We hope. We hope for the renewal of creation. We hope for that time when things will finally realize that God's home is now among us. And I know it sounds sort of like a churchy answer to say, well, just hope. You know, sit on your hands and wait around and hope that things will be different one day. But there's a difference between a wish and a hope. And we often get the two confused. A wish is something that you do on your birthday when you blow out a candle. Literally, you blow out the light. A wish is something that you let go of, that you put out there and then you just let go of it and you say, yep, there it goes. But a hope, a hope is something a little bit deeper. A hope, a hope is a deep longing that brings the birth of faithful action. Uh, a hope is is something that, that you not let go of, but it's something that you hold on to. A hope is something that even holds on to you. Hope is not idle, but hope is the inertia that pushes us forward into faithful action. Here's how Donald Miller uh, talked about hope. He said, Hope is light shining back from the future, and it marks the path we have to walk on. You see, hope and wishing diverge from each other in the moment that we decide to take that first step into faithful action. To not let go of what we long for, but to cling to it and to pursue it. And so, I'm not sure if you knew this about me or not, I'm not just the pastor at First United Methodist Church of Dunedin. I'm actually a pastor of a 7.3 or so billion member congregation. They just don't know about me yet. But most of them also don't know about Jesus. And yet more and more of them unfortunately are quoting him. And I say unfortunately for this reason that the reason why more and more people are quoting Jesus is because they are quoting some of the final words that he said from the cross as he hung there in agony and cried out, I thirst. Those two words, that quote, is being remarked more and more every day. It's estimated that about 1.1 million people, sorry, billion people do not have access to clean or safe drinking water. And it's clear that where there is uh, not access to clean or safe drinking water, that more children die, that there is more disease, there is more sickness, and that where there is access to clean and safe drinking water, more children live and life can flourish And the really scary thing is that we are using water faster than it can be replenished. And so being good stewards of God's creation means that we're sharing joy with all the world when we take responsibility for our own actions, for our own stewardship, and especially when we have an eye for the world that's not far off and distant, but one that's here. And we have eyes for the most vulnerable that we share this earth earth with, the poor among us. And so we can't just wish for these problems to go away. We need a hope, an active, a daring hope, a hope that is not optional. So Pope Francis, he wrote this, He said the entire material universe speaks of God's love, his boundless affection for us. Soil, water, mountains, everything is, as it were, a caress of God. I love that. And so living our vocation, our calling, or to be children... Of God, as Paul says. So, living into that, to be protectors of God's handiwork is essential to a life of virtue. It is not optional or a secondary aspect of our Christian experience. Or, years before Pope Francis would ever say this, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said this. He said, I believe in my heart that faith in Jesus Christ can and will lead us beyond an exclusive concern for the well-being of other human beings, to the broader concern for the well-being of the birds in the backyard, the fish in our rivers, and every living creature on the face of the earth. The hope that one day the groaning of creation will cease as we do our part. And so you've probably heard the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, before. It's a pretty familiar one. Isaac Watts, the man who wrote uh, the Christmas hymn, um, he had a particular passage of scripture in mind and, and a vision for what it looked like for, to have joy to the world when Christ would come. When he wrote those words, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. And those words are almost taken directly out of Isaiah 35. You see, the prophet Isaiah had this, this hope, this vision for when God would return and restore the earth, restore the people that all things, all things and all of creation would shout with joy. And so Isaiah 35 says this, it says, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. And so strengthen feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground, bubbling springs. In the hunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. That's what joy looks like. That's the hope that we long and we cling to with all of creation to hear Jesus say those words, behold, I am making all things new. And let there be light everywhere. But hope does not consist of just wishful thinking or idly waiting. Hope consists and calls us to, as Isaiah said, to strengthen feeble hands, to steady the weak knees that want to give way, to say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. And we cling to that hope because we know that God has come once before in Jesus Christ and that he has promised to come again. He has promised to be with this world to make all things new again. And we remember that. As he shared a final meal with his closest disciples, his closest friends, it was a fairly ordinary meal made out of ordinary elements like bread made from wheat and grain and grapes to make wine. And yet God took this ordinary, everyday, earthly thing, these earthly elements and transformed it and made something beautiful out of it. That when he took the bread... He gave thanks to God and he blessed it and he broke it and he said, this is actually my body which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And then when they had finished eating, Jesus took the cup and he gave thanks to you, O God, and he blessed it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take and drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many, for all who thirst. Drink of it as often as you do in remembrance of me. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you that your spirit is here. We thank you that you have already shown up, that you meet us here today, that you are Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, we confess at this time that there are often many moments where we want to try to distance ourselves from you. Distance ourselves from one another. Distance ourselves from this world and this creation. Yet God, call us back. Call us back to one another. Call us back to this world. Call us back to you because here we will find you. And so we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here. That you would pour out your Spirit on these gifts of bread and the cup Lord, that they would be for us your body and your blood broken and poured out for us so that we can be for this world broken and poured out for it. Redeemed, called your children, called your body so that we can share grace with the world. Pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.